Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, uh, and perhaps uh, it should be Christmas Insider because we're, this is a special festive edition um, of our Markets and Economics podcast. And I'm here with a great lineup of guests to close out the year and talk about uh, what has been a really extraordinary year uh, for the global economy, domestic economy, uh, and on the policy front. Um, our first guest, Joanne Masters from ANZ Bank, uh, is a senior economist there, uh, used to be a currency strategist in a previous life, um, a, a very, very excellent analyst. You are, you are most welcome and it's great to have you here. I am so pleased to be here. I really enjoy doing these podcasts and really happy to do the Christmas edition. And uh, one of our other regular guests, James Whelan, uh, investment advisor at uh, VFS Group. James, welcome back on the show. It's always fantastic to be here, Paul. Thank you so much for having us on for the special Christmas edition. Uh, and always, as always, it's uh, David Scott, Global Markets and Economics Correspondent for, for Business Insider. David, uh, are you looking forward to your break? Very much so. I'm looking forward to having a sip of this champagne right now. And hello out there. Uh, so one of the things uh, about this edition, uh, we're very lucky um, to do it in a very sort of festive way. I want to give you a little bit of a picture of where we are. We are on the 31st floor of the Intercontinental Hotel in Sydney. Um, the Intercon is um, across the road from the Business Insider office uh, here at the north end of the CBD. Uh, and um, the Intercon has this award-winning, beautiful um, executive club uh, on the top of the hotel. It's got a 270-degree balcony um, where you can walk out along it. There's, and it's basically just a four-foot railing um, uh, and nothing else. And you can sort of look around all of the harbour, um, all over the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge, and then out to uh, the Sydney Heads. Um, so the Intercon is uh, hosting us here. Um, and we are going to talk about some of the biggest things that have happened um, across the year. What a year it's been. Um, I, I kind of look back, David, remember the day that um, Brexit happened. Uh, and it was... Uh, we had to do this podcast uh, with Chris Weston from, from IG Markets, and uh, we were all still reeling from what it actually, well, from what the outcome had been. Oh, that day is remarkable. I remember getting to the office before, uh, before daybreak and waiting for the, uh, the polls to go and shut and the first uh, results to come in. And I remember distinctively Newcastle was supposed to be a big remain. They were very narrowly in favour of remain, and then Sunderland came in. And they were voted to leave, and all hell broke loose. And that was uh, that day was as close to uh, experiencing the GFC all over again in terms of the pure market moves that we saw. It was incredible. It really was uh, an incredible day. But um, I think Brexit was uh, a big part of the story of this podcast. Um, that was uh, the numbers for that particular podcast went through the roof. Um, and I think as people were. Um, looking for information and sort of some context, and I think we tried to do some of that uh, in that episode, but um, through the contributions of um, people like Joe and James uh, through the year, um, uh, we've built uh, quite a following. So it's uh, nice to be able to close out the year. We're going to talk about a couple of news headlines first. Um, so my EFO, uh, very important to do, cover some of this macro stuff. Uh, the mid-year uh, budget update from the government um, released this week. Um, 
conservative assumptions on the outlook for the year ahead. Joe, um, what was the key takeout for you? Because there was a lot of people who were sort of breathlessly saying that um, Australia's AAA uh, credit rating was, uh, was under threat and we might have lost it by the end of this week. Well, I think that's right. You know, certainly the speculation in the press in, in the lead up to that Monday announcement intensified. And then you certainly got this sort of sense, this environment that Australia was about to lose its AAA credit rating. And of course, um, you know, AAA very highest to the credit rating and important for bond markets and important for corporate bond issuance as well. So what is normally actually quite a boring release, you know, not very interesting for most people, it's got a lot of numbers in it, actually became quite important. And, you know, what we got really was a, a conservative set of numbers, as you said. If we compare the government's economic numbers to our own, they look broadly uh, reasonable, fairly conservative. Uh, and But what was really important was around the return to surplus. So the rating agencies have consistently said we need to get the budget back to surplus by 2021. The government has been forecasting that. And the big question was, will they be able to forecast that again against the backdrop of weaker economic growth and particularly weaker wage growth? Uh, and look, they did it. Now, you know, you can always nudge and fudge your numbers and there's ways and means to, to get a number. But it was important to have a surplus in that 2021 year. So what we actually got was... Bigger deficits in the near term, but still a surplus in that out year. Well, question for you. So we're looking at a deficit, 35 to $38 billion in the next couple of years. Um, and they're talking about a surplus in 2021, which is five years from now. If we had a, say, a $5 billion deficit, right, in a, uh, the economy by that stage will probably be the order of about $1.7 trillion, um, $2 trillion, and if we were running a you know, $5 billion deficit, do you think the AAA credit rating would still be a question? No, I don't. I don't think you actually have to deliver a surplus, but what we do have to deliver are smaller deficits. And the reason for that is, at this point, if the Australian economy gets hit by another external shock, a GFC or a financial shock of some type, we don't have any buffer to help the economy. So during the GFC, you know, we had commodity prices that helped us, but we also had fiscal policy that could pump money into the economy and monetary policy that could become much more stimulatory. So at the moment, monetary policy has not much further to be able to go and neither does fiscal policy. So you have to repair that fiscal story in order to have a buffer for future events. And, you know, we know that future events happen. We don't know when, we don't know what they will be, but we do know that they come. Uh, James, just quickly on the politics uh, of this, uh, how do you think Scott Morrison played it? Uh, he, uh, annoyingly, if I was going to go off the cuff on this one, I'd say that, as usual, they played it the way that they think they have to play it to, to get them through what's ahead, um, which is the way that they've played it. They've played it safe. They've played it to try and maintain some sort of grip on, on, on what's left on there. Um, as you know, I've been fairly critical of, of what's been going on lately, and uh, this is no real change on this. It's a, it's a, I mean, Joe jo would know better on this, uh, the, the, the actual numbers of it behind it, but talking politically, um, it's, it's the safety move. It's, it's what needs to be done. Annoyingly, that's probably what's, what's actually worse at this particular time for them, for them to do that politically. They've, they've not been bold. They've not been, um, there's, there's been no real conviction or carry on things. They've done what they think is popular. And uh, it, if someone has advised them to say that if you lose your, Credit rating. Um, if you get downgraded, then uh, then your polling numbers are going to be uh, are going to be bad, it's, and, and Labor is going to get a free kick at the next election or whatever is ahead. And so he's done whatever's avoided that. Now, it, living by polls is is a terrible way for a government to survive uh, three years, especially when you've only got a majority of nothing. Uh, and and so 
if I was going to be uh, absolutely critical, it's uh, just a, a, cling to the, a cling to a very shaky raft. Can I just jump in there? And I actually do think, uh, you know, some of those comments are absolutely right. And when you look at the fiscal picture, uh, the question of the rating hasn't gone away. So, you know, Australia didn't get downgraded this week, but we are still on negative watch from S&P. We've still got rating agencies saying we're not happy with what we're seeing. And whilst the, the profile looks quite good, and you can say if you can return to surplus in 2021, that's a good message, the government now has to deliver. And, you know, S&P said back in July, we give you six to 12 months to show that you can deliver on the numbers. So really, the pressure is now on delivering policy that underpins the, the profile that we've got in that MyEFO. And as we know, uh, it um, the political uh, situation with the parliament the way it is, uh, the makeup of the Senate crossbench in particular, uh, delivering things is difficult. That's correct. And, and uh, also going further, an electorate is, that is very sick of hearing about we're going to deliver a, a surplus and they're not delivering a surplus and they say, well, stop telling us that you're going to. Just either do it or don't or stop telling us that. Do what you've got to do to try and, to try and get us through the next one, uh, whatever the next one is going to be. And I do honestly think that we've got a next one ahead of us, um, whether it's next year or, or ahead. But I think that it's pretty tenuous uh, protection mechanisms uh, that we have in place. I'll pass. David. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well played, James. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, David, the market reaction to this stuff, uh, really markets never roused from a slumber on something like this. No, not at all. It was uh, dead quiet. The Aussie dollar rallied uh, probably about 10 pips maximum uh, on the news that there was, uh, was going to be no downgrade on this occasion. But uh, I think that markets are forward looking and I think that uh, everyone, bar the very, very optimistic, thinks that there's probably a downgrade coming. That's my personal view. Right. Um, so, yeah, I certainly have uh, heard um, a lot of people um, express that view, um, both publicly but also in private. Um, people who kind of say, well, we're proud of the, the, of the AAA rating and it's important. Um, but privately, they will say to you, look, we actually think this is a, an ongoing concern. I, I definitely. And it's not to go in, like, obviously, trying to forecast what commodity price movements are going to do is, uh, is, is difficult at the best of times. And we're seeing that this year. But the thing that strikes me is that they're still picking this huge, you know, re-acceleration in wage growth. Uh, consumption's still going to be fairly strong. They haven't happened. And they're the premise for going bringing back the, uh, the budget to surplus. I can't see that happening. It, I, it really is. So they, they say that, um, so wages growth, 1.9% private sector. Correct. Uh, and they're talking about it getting back up. Um, in, with a two handle in front of it. Not just two, um, 2.5. Yeah, 2.5, which is a long way from where we are now. And there's a lot of labour market slack, and we're in a, a time in this economy where there are so many competitive pressures coming on. I just cannot see that occurring. Name the close. Go, no, no, you go, Jeff. Even if you look at the US economy that's been running at full employment for three or four years, they are only just now starting to see wage growth start to accelerate. We're not even at full employment, and if you look at underemployment, we've actually got a lot of spare capacity in our labour market. That's right. It, it's, it, I, I don't know where they're getting the number from to be, able, and also just because it's been said, I, I've got no faith in it at all. No, note to self uh, for next year: if there is an uptick in uh, wages growth, uh, we're going to turn that into where a big the, story. Where are the numbers? Are the, are the numbers ABS numbers? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I can trust that. I've got no faith in those numbers. <laughs> so what? So, so, the, so the, the predictive fake numbers that that are being made up are going to be are going to be reported to us by. What the, the uh, um, 
you know, phoning around to six people, you and your mates, to see how you're going. You're, you're getting paid Forget more. About point you're, getting, four you're getting paid more last week than you were this week. Point, oh, yeah. point, point, point four quarterly uh, increase or point five quarterly increases that have been before the last uh, last release. Is there something going to become point six, point seven? And look, happy days. Okay. And we'll be back in surplus. Yep. Not. No, well, you need more than that, mate. Yes, it's, 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 uh... Actually, if you don't believe that wages are going to accelerate, the real focus from a policy point of view has to be on recurrent spending. right? So in a low nominal growth world, you cannot grow your way out of a deficit. We have low inflation, low wage growth, low nominal growth. So you really have to focus on recurrent spending. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. It's a special Christmas edition, and we are now going to turn to the really fun part. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. Um, we're going to talk about some of the best and worst economics and markets calls of the year. Now, um, one of the things um, that somebody said to me when I started out uh, running Business Insider, and we were talking about predictions and forecasts and so on, um, one of the smartest pieces of advice that anybody gave to me was, the thing you have to understand is that nobody makes money from consensus. So you can't be uh, on consensus in a market and make money on a trade, um, whether that's you are in line with how you think the direction of a stock is going to go, um, whether you think a bond is going to increase or decrease in value, but you need to make a call at some point. And I think one of the things that I respect most in markets is when people make big calls, uh, big bold predictions um, that can often shock people. Um, but one of the things I also respect about a lot of people in economics is how willing they are to admit that they were wrong. Um, I think one of the things where it gets interesting is when people still insist when everything's moving against them and all the data says it's incredibly wrong, you're on the wrong side of this. It's, and they insist that their case is still... I'm right. I'm right. It's the market that's wrong. I know those people. I know those people. You've got to yeah. know when to call it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, what, have we, what have we got there, Paul? You know? So I'm going to throw to you guys first. Um, so we're going to start with the worst forecast of the year. Like we thought, you know, maybe we can do the best forecasts and talk very politely about which people we thought were excellent. But no, nah, let's just start with who was rubbish. Shellacking. <laughs> here, okay, here we go. Batter up. I've got to start with who will I round and round and round she goes David Scott oh, look, that's an easy one we discussed it on the podcast last week uh, I think uh, Andrew Roberts uh, interest rate strategist at RBS the sell everything guy if, uh, you don't really need to know his name just sell everything uh, told clients uh, in early January's year to sell everything except high quality bonds this is about uh, return of capital not return on capital in a crowded hall exit doors are small uh, every call that he's made is wrong Every call. So he was saying equities would be lower. They're not. Commodities would be lower. They're not. He thought bond, the, the price of a bond would be maybe steady or high, 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 probably higher if he's going Investment grade bonds, uh, he was the only thing he was going to buy. Everything else was going to sell. So you look at the market movements this year, pretty much everything is incorrect. It's, it's, Both sides of yeah, his trade work. It's, it's, the, it's the Moab, the uh, mother of all blow-ups uh, in terms of your capital. So if you followed his advice, um, sorry, I might be uh, shelling out a few uh, pennies on the street later on. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was a spectacular call. Have you any other terrible forecasts that you would like to uh, call out? Uh, look, there's... There are many. Um, 
one. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah, yeah everything. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, there's a couple of obvious ones. Uh, Paddy Power, um, the uh, UK bookmaker, um, they went and paid out on a Clinton victory, uh, I think in October, sorry, in September this year. Uh, they, so they actually paid out on the loser uh, for, the, uh, for the presidential election, which I found uh, amusing. Um, that's after offering odds of 100 to 1 for Donald Trump to win the US presidency. <laughs> so, uh, thankfully, I don't think they would have had too much uh, money at stake there, but um, surely that would have been a costly one. Um, to, to be fair, I, I remember the morning of the election, uh, it was a Wednesday morning here in Australia, and the, the morning of the election, I got into my office, sat down at my desk, started looking at the day ahead. Polls were starting to close in the United States. Count was starting. Um, and I started planning out what I was going to do for the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, sort of thinking about, well, I'll have, you know, this will be all done and dusted by around lunchtime. And um, I can move on to other things after about 2.30. Nope. Then the panhandle of Florida came in for, right. uh, for Trump and then it was, uh, it was all on. Yeah. We, um, we had... Uh, we, we were early to, uh, we, we stayed consensus, sorry, uh, on, on Clinton, but with a very, very big foot in the Trump camp on watching Michigan, Wisconsin and Florida. And as soon as we saw that, that Clinton didn't have enough numbers in um, the rest of Florida to be able to carry her when the panhandle numbers started coming through, which we knew were all going to go red, those districts, we, we called it early um, and, and we're, we're very... Yeah, we, we were one of the first ones that day to say, look, cancel your plans because this is, this is real. He's winning this. He's going to get this off, off here. Um, and uh, there, was, there was a lot of people just in disbelief like you were, just like, no, everyone says that this is how it was supposed to go. Um, all the polling shows that this is how it's supposed to go. It was easy for people to be very wrong that day. Um, but we can't be sympathetic to the bookmakers because they choose they chose willingly to go and pay out on oh, something yeah, early. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like I'm not really sure. Then oh look, we're the first to pay out, so she come and go now and, and punt with us. I'm not sure because it looks pretty silly now. Anyway, sure does. Um, James, on that same subject. Yes. Um, yes. So I I uh, mine, uh, I don't really like professors of economics or. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the best, at the best of times, I was going to say economists, and I, I think I might just stick there. That, but just, that's just, okay. Just yeah, that's okay. Just, just the professors of economists. But, uh, yeah. but uh, Paul Krugman is a is a is a U.S. professor of economics, and I think he was actually supposed to be in line to be a financial advisor uh, for Hillary Clinton or something around that. Uh, had she been elected as the president um, on the evening of the election, um, when it when it looked very certain or almost certain that uh, the Trump was going to get it, and there was no way around these things. Paul Krugman put out uh, one of his little notes, uh, the economic fallout, and I'll, I'll, I'll go for a quote here. It's just, it's just perfect. Um, it really does now look like President Donald, da Donald J. Trump and markets uh, are plunging. When might we expect them to recover? Frankly, I find it hard to care much, even though this is my specialty. The disaster for America and the world has so many aspects that the economic ramifications are way down on my list of things to fear. Still, I guess people want an answer. If the question is when markets will recover, a first-pass answer is never. Only got it wrong by four hours. hours. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, what else? So, yeah, your, uh, so your socks are up about eight yeah, hours later. That's right. So yeah, we just uh, the Dow just tipping on on twenty thousand, uh, almost touched there last night. So that's uh, you know, in a, it just a, almost a, just over a month later uh, that he's got that. But it was a lot of people just making those calls that the world is ending. That was it. Four hours later, he, he gave that um, his victory speech. Uh, everyone thought, well, he's not, uh, he's not the lunatic that we all thought he was going to be, and we're not at war yet. And uh, as always, as we have learnt in 2016, everything is a buying opportunity, and everything has been a buying opportunity in 2016. There's so much to be uh, curious about in t looking at 2017. 
Um, but one of the fascinating things is going to be, is absolutely going to be where the US stock market is going to end up. Um, the Dow has had a crack at 20,000 points um, a couple of times. Um, it's just ticking ever so slightly up this week. Um, it just can't get, maybe there's a technical resistance or whatever it is, or psychological resistance. Well, there's no technical but resistance when it's at all-time highs. It's, it's just, everyone's just looking at the figure going, who's going to go and push it up there? I'm, my my goal is going to be tonight, I reckon. Only open 20,000 balloon streamers, party hats. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to hold Do you see it sustained up there, though? No. No, I think... That's the question, I, I, right? Yeah, markets are forward-looking, and we'll get a fairly good indication, I reckon, by mid midway through next year whether Trump's proposed policies that he used in the run-up to the election will be actually implemented and be able to get passed through, uh, through the, uh, the, the That's right. parliament. That's right. We've bought the rumour and now it's going to be time to sell the fact on that one, potentially. And it's not just that, but the markets have focused on the whole reflation story. So the, the first question is how much that reflation policy can he actually get through? But the other element is, you know, we're all focused on the reflation story and there's very little focus on the trade story. Right. And his trade policies are potentially quite negative for global growth and actually for some U.S. companies as well. So at some point, you've got to balance out the whole policy platform, not just the reflation. Can't, can't you see when during his inauguration speech on what, January 20, he'll be standing out there and he about just does the oath. And the first thing he goes, hush, everyone, gets on his phone, gets on Twitter. China is a currency manipulator. Send. Go. And, <laughs> and then it's on. It's, 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 you know, the next day, the, the UN is at eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's, always, it's, always, it's always ridiculous things that correct markets, um, never the things that you think it's going to be. It's going to be Donald Trump at two o'clock in the afternoon. He's going to say, gee, this market looks, tw looks toppy. He's just going to tweet, it's, <laughs> it's looking sad, it's a sell. And that's going to be that, that's that's going to be the lunacy or something like that that comes in. And twenty percent later, um, it's going to be wow. That was one hundred and forty characters of hell. Yeah, I think you're right though. It's never the thing that you think that turns the market yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, something from him. Like, can you imagine? Investors need to be cautious in this market. You know, if he was to say that. Yeah. Oh look, he's already said that in past tweets. I hate to refer to everything in tweets, but he's just such a prolific tweeter. But he's actually said in the past, you know, that people that uh, that markets should be very wary about rising interest rates. So our interest rates will rise at home, then yeah. the day of reckoning. It's like, oh, well, that's already happened, and all of a sudden the stocks are at all-time highs. So maybe, maybe Donald's going to go and back away from that call, but so that's something to go and keep in mind as well. Uh, Joe, I want to turn to you, ask about uh, your, um, some of your worst calls that you've seen across the year. Uh, yeah, look, it's, it was kind of interesting to have a look at it. It's relatively easy to find worst calls, and like anything, if you dig <laughs> deep enough, you can find someone that's called just about anything. So... Uh, I also had the sell everything. I think that would be on everyone's top three. But the one, I, the one that I particularly like is around the currency. And you know, from my perspective, I sort of thought about the Aussie, and I went, actually, this year everyone's had a moment to be right on the Aussie, right? You know, it sort of dipped down below seventy, and then it got back up to seventy-eight, and it's sort of range traded. So everyone's had a time to be right. But I did find a forecast uh, from a Danish bank. Uh, back in January, where he called the Aussie dollar back to parity with the US dollar. Whoa. This year, on the back of RBA rate hikes. And I thought that is spectacularly that's wrong. Needed, yeah, that's someone who needs to get on the phone to an Australian and, and, and how's it going out there? Yeah, it's not <laughs> <laughs> now, you don't want to be too critical when you're a world away, but yeah. I thought that's a big call. That is, that is a big call, parity. When, when will we see? No, there's not even a thing that you, you, you're thinking. Sometime I think the, the next, next parity years, might be Aussie Kiwi, right? Not yeah. Aussie US. Uh, the next parity might be Euro, Aussie, Euro US. Yeah, okay. And so we'll have to start planning for um, parody with the Kiwi at some point. You know, we'll do a special edition, a special Kiwi edition of, uh, of the podcast. Can I come uh, on that? Because yeah. I don't think you'll see parody on Aussie Kiwi. I'm just going to put that out there yeah, now. Below, below 105 is a death zone. So you starve the oxygen of the trade and it just, it just peters out and then dies. Back it goes again for another crack in a few years' time. 
Fantastic. So, here's a position for you. Parody with the Kiwi. And everybody just unloads on it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, any other worst calls, Joe? Uh, look, the other one I had was a little bit broader, actually. And um, in defence of economics professors and economists, I wanted to say this year, you know what? The polls and the polls, the polls and their betting agencies have had a terrible year. Mm. And economists actually have had an OK year. So, um, yeah, that was sort of just a broader worst call. I, I, I think um, polling, um, professional polling... Uh, has really had a shocker. Um, the amount of money that private companies and uh, media organizations um, pay to people who research public opinion, astronomical the fees uh, for, for some, of this, some of this stuff. And there have been positions, particularly with Brexit and Trump, um, where they have been so spectacularly wrong um, that, like, the credibility of these guys, I, I, I don't know where you would even start if they don't you were have a client. Yeah. I'll, I'll go on the record, they don't have any. After this year, you know, you think about to all the huge political events in Europe in particular that we're going to see next year, you're going to have all this uncertainty. What are the polls, you know, oh, the polls say they know that Merkel's in the lead or whatever. People aren't going to believe it. And that's going to create this huge degree of uncertainty because people have learned to not trust but distrust what these what these organisations are putting out. I, do so want to I actually had a look to see if I could find an election that did go according to plan, and Ghana had an as as expected election outcome. Beautiful. <laughs> who, uh, celebrating NAFRA. <laughs> who, who, who won that one there? Do you want to back that up? Uh, I'm not going to back that up with too much there? detail. But yeah. um, the, uh, Just speaking about polls, and 2016 has showed us that, that the Bradley effect, which is, which is say differently than you're actually um, thinking with regards to pollsters, uh, is the Bradley effect on steroids has been the 2016 story. Um, pollsters have got no credi credibility. It was, it was my colleague David Payne, who I, who I promised that I was going to credit as being the one who, who very a long way out did call Trump. The poll that absolutely he looked at that, that was the one that he could trust wasn't who are you going to vote for. It was, okay, who are you going to vote for? It was, who do you think your neighbour is going to vote for? And that one, it was like, oh no, I'm going to vote for Clinton. Or who do you think your neighbour's going to vote for? I think my neighbour's going to vote for Trump. So everyone thought their neighbour was going to vote for Trump, but they were all saying that they were going to vote for Clinton. That was a poll that showed that Trump was going to win. So but that's the shy, shy Tory syndrome. The shy Tories. And it was also because we live in, an, in a world where you become so open to criticism that every single time that you say something that's slightly off, um, you know, off, off, the, off the usual spectrum, um, that, that you think, well, you know what, I don't need to tell this pollster who I'm going to vote for because I don't want, I don't want to be open for harassment because of it. Yeah. But that's sort of interesting, right? Because that's the difference between a poll and the betting agencies, for example. The poll asks, who are you going to vote for? The betting agency, you actually bet on who you think will win. But betting agencies have also got it wrong this year. Yes, very much so. And, that, 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 and that's why we've always said, go with the betting agencies. Well, they've got a 72% track record uh, prior to 2016. Oh, I want to put one little asterisk on the, on the polling question, because the polls in Australia had... Labour and the Libs, and Labour and the Coalition at 50-50 going into the election, and the Coalition square, nobody believed it. Nobody believed it was that close. And we didn't have a government on the on election night. No, we did not. <laughs> we, we didn't know. Malcolm Turnbull had to go to the party and explain, well, it looks like we're going to be returned, but he, he couldn't declare victory. It was That was a 
very, very strange evening. But the polls got that, I think, pretty right. I think what they did miss was um, the, the rise of the, you know, um, the independent, like how strong that vote for uh, non-major parties uh, would be. Well, it was uh, a record vote for non-major major parties. That's right. Uh, and do you know why? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a, a contestant in for the worst call of the year. Was Malcolm Turnbull deciding to, to have a 13-week election? Um, oh yes, that no that was I'm the so tired. That's what, that was it. You guys, you guys were overtime this year. The the it, that's what it was. It was, and people were just sick of sick of the story by the time that that election cycle had finished. It was the longest one that had ever been done, and there's a, there's a reason why he was just by inches returned to power, and it was because I, I do honestly believe it was because he ran such a long election cycle through that time. And you know, there's a lesson there from history because do you remember Julia Gillard declared the election date? Something like I'm just working from memory here, but like a year before they went to the polls, mm. said, this is going to be the, you know, and look what happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that. Best calls, or actually, have you done a worst call? Uh, I have got a couple of worst calls. Uh, one is I need to give a special shout out to the housing bearers um, in Australia. Wrong <laughs> for the twenty fifth, thirtieth year in a row. Um, look, I don't want to pour scorn on the view that. Um, people think that the housing market is going to implode and that Australia is headed for a depression um, completely because there are certainly some risks in the housing market. But um, people who have been bearish housing, I think, in Australia um, for a long time uh, um, have been proven wrong and don't seem to want to come to grips with the facts that are staring them in the face. Um, we've had something like 15% appreciation in, in, in house growth in Sydney this year. Um, there are some unusual and new fresh factors that keep move, coming into the housing market all the time. Um, sure, there are some risks. It's going to be very interesting next year what will happen with apartments. Um, but look, congratulations, housing bears, on being wrong yet again. Um, I, but I do go back to the whole thing about you know a bro broken clock is uh, right twice a day, mm. and at some point... Um, there will be a correction and, and they'll get their day in the sun. Um, but wrong yet again for the housing bears. Uh, I the also noticed that you only mentioned Sydney with regards to the, to the house price appreciation of 15%. Well, look, this is the thing. You can't buy Australian housing. You can buy a house. Yeah. Right? But also, it's not a housing market. It's a market in a market in a market in a market, right? So I think sometimes the confusion comes when we talk about the housing market and actually there's no such thing. There is, there is Sydney and then there's the East Coast and then there's everyone else. And, and there's the, houses and, the, and apartments. And then there's, the, there's that. The, going into a date, I, I try not, well, I'm a, anyway, moving the, on. The bigger question for the housing, on that housing bear question, is the structural issues that it might create for the banking system. Um, so that the, the problems that it would, just, just what it would do to maybe banking share prices. Mm. I'm not talking about risks for, like, um, what, existential risk for banks at all. Just let me make that clear. But that it might be, painful for banking share prices, um, that it might um, uh, lead to a lot of defaults um, and that people would lose money and maybe lose some savings and have a terrible time. I actually uh, think that's the bigger, well, that's the, there's that's a lot the of economic of, risk, but yep. one of the big ones is in a low wage environment. Yep. Actually, house price growth has been really important to sustain the consumer and that's the biggest part of our economy. The thing that you are most indebted about is going up in value. As soon as that stops happening, the house of cards suddenly gets a big gust of wind on it. A highly illiquid market as well. Yeah, you can't just flip yeah. that thing out there, especially if everyone else is trying to do the same thing. So it's 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 I'm I have 
serious concerns, and that's why I'm I'm not as confident with regards to the to the big banks. Um, and always, always we're looking at the, the bad and doubtful debts when it comes to the banks. Just to, that's our that's our first place that we look on that on the bank stocks. Uh, let me do one quick last. Um, I've got two more, and I'm just going to cover these off super quick. Uh, Harry Dent, um, a, 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 a U.S. investor, said that the Dow was going to 4,000. <laughs> Wrong. Um, and um, I've got one worst call for me, um, which was uh, saying on the podcast about three months ago that I thought the commodity rally would lead to a uh, an improvement in the um, deficit profile. Now, $600 million better this year. So can I call that half right? No, I can't. Deeper deficit next year. Um, uh, and the risks in, that, in the commodity prices um, uh, still remain. But that was, um, that was wrong. Um, <laughs> good. It's, good. it's good that you've, you've taken that one on the chin. Yeah. Right. A lot of people wouldn't. Okay, um, okay. Uh, so we're, we've got about, uh, we're going to try and wrap this up in about uh, five minutes or so. But here's, sorry, sorry Paul, I just want to go in. Yeah, I just want to have one quick one and a special mention as well. So on the podcast uh, a few months ago, the man sitting next to me, James Whelan, hey. made a call saying that he preferred, no, he was looking to go and buy US banks further over uh, Australian banks. Now, I just went and did the quick math when I looked at the uh, S&P banking index and the ASX 200 banking index for this quarter. US uh, banking index is up 30% in a quarter. Oz is only up 10%. That's so, fantastic. James, oh, good for you. That's an amazing call. Yeah. Yeah. I, hope got, I hope you went on board. That's fantastic. I know we did. We did. And this is another one that we went on the back of, of my associate, David Payne, who I, who I did promise that, uh, that I was going to shout out to on this one, that he was the one who really, really convinced us of this one. That that's where we wanted to be. It was it was such a, 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 a it, looking back it is an easy call and looking ahead it is also still an easy call with because regards to what's I ahead. remember this call and it was all based on the fact that treasury yields the bottom was in on treasury yields so so the top had been reached in the bond market uh, yields were starting to rise um, the U.S. Um, was the U.S. economy starting to look at some capacity constraints, giving a little bit of inflation repressure, tiny, 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 just bit. enough yep. to start. This is before the election too, so there was a. Um, and there's basically there's more ability for the, those U.S. banks, like the Wells Fargo's, etc., um, to make money yeah. when those yields are for doing nothing, for doing absolutely nothing and no change. And I know that we're, we're strained for time, but for doing absolutely no different. If you have a company that for no changes internally and no changes in strategy. All they've got to do is find their way to the AGM and they make more money. That's, that's, that's the buy. That was basically a call that priced in a Clinton victory. That's right. And we've seen what's happened to the bond market since Donald Trump got elected. Bonds have been absolutely smoked. Yeah. Yields, um, Japanese 10 years uh, went slightly positive for a few seconds at well, one still point. Yeah, right. so, it's, so it's, it's heading there, right? So that's, that's right. See, so, yeah, it was. We were expecting, we were trying to play it safe on the, on the Clinton victory, but the Trump thing just put it on, uh, put it on steroids. It was a, an incredible thing to do. Uh, well, so, actually, one of my top three best calls this year was uh, uh, somebody from Morgan Stanley Investment Management out of US, and he called really early the return of the inflation risk premium. Wow. He called it back in March. Which is the Trump trade. That's what, the Trump what we're now trade. calling, yeah. 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 So that was a great call. It's going to be a good story for 2017 is trying to figure out what these increased bond yields are actually going to do. Uh, the second and third derivative after that is a whole podcast on itself. Um, so as we're, it's uh, Christmas, so we're handing out the presents. Um, so um, I do have 
um, best call, one of my best calls, uh, is by you, Joe. And it was back on this podcast um, when it was, I think, the day or two days after Q2 GDP came out. And one of the things that you pointed out in that as a serious concern was the slowing in consumption growth. Um, and that has continued to be, that is, it is the biggest component of GDP. Um, it's the biggest question mark. Um, we get the GDP partials coming into um, the, the, the release of the, the final number. Um, and the big question was how strong in Q3 when we had that negative number, big question was how strong was consumption growth? Uh, and you had picked that trend that it was slowing, it still was, and that's basically what broke that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Thanks for uh, highlighting. So, um, so I thought that was a great call to just oh, pull that out. And so, well done. And I think that's still a theme. Still a theme. I got my hand up. Can I, can I answer that? So I got, I got one more, and um, I feel obliged with this. Uh, so Richard Grace, who's also on our podcast earlier this year, um, and his uh, team of strategists there at the Commonwealth Bank, went and uh, made a call on Trump. Now, there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, very, very bearish forecasts have been put out about what potentially a Trump uh, victory would do and how how far stock market would fall and everything else. So he wrote this back in September. He goes, we anticipate high US bond yields, a flatter yield curve, high US equity markets, and a stronger US dollar, all based on the premise that Trump's economic policies are very inflationary. That that's is, it. That's, that's a good call. That's that, all you that, needed. That to me is an absolute, you know, when you look at all the various trades that he's got in there, if you went and followed that, you've won. Yep. You've only needed to work three days this year, and that's the day after Brexit, the day after Trump, and the day after the Italian referendum. But James, you're, you're, st you're working every day. Is it just, you just, you <laughs> I'm here, I'm not working, mate. It's, it's, uh, but 90% uh, yeah, yeah. of the time it's not doing anything. And, that's, and that for this one is just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, okay, that's done. Now we can buy. Uh, on my best calls of the year, I also had uh, James Whelan with um, the US banking call. Um, I thought that was... Um, uh, really interesting. Sounds like uh, I'm buying thinking, lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can pay me off for the show. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I do have one other. Uh, I've, I've actually got two others. Um, so uh, Greg McKenna, um, very early this year when the Aussie was down around 72 and people were talking about rate cuts and the Aussie might go to 68. And um, China was, um, and Greg started talking about the Aussie um, was turning a corner and he said 78 cents. That's where it finished up. Well, um, it, did, it did get the 68 cents, though, or just a fraction above. So it was, it was a two-way street there. Oh, it was after it had hit 68. Oh, okay. It was back at 72. And the people were talking about structurally. Back down. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, the, do you remember the, the whole, wow, just, just thinking back to that part of the year, um, it was yield chase. Um, you know, uh, people saying, well, like, there's a nice inf interest rate differential. The Fed was still pushing out um, its horizon for... Um, it's buying, second the, buying utilities, buying the, the, the toll road operators and things like that, those bond proxies. Buy bonds for growth, stocks for yield. Uh, that was the top. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> what happened to that trade? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so one, one, I have to say, uh, uh, that was a really interesting call by Greg at the time. I remember reading it when he filed the story, and I said, wow, Greg, that's really putting your neck on the line. But, okay, let's do it. Um, and the other one was uh, David, actually. Um, so I've got one for you too, Dave, um, about the um, uh, calling really early the level of speculation in commodity markets, um, uh, particularly iron ore. Uh, so um, that basically in China, it was the arrival of perhaps not retail investors, but people who were looking for something else to bet on. 
um, uh, investors, um, funds, and um, there was a little bit of a pickup. The bottom was, came in on um, iron ore in particular um, and iron ore futures, um, and they started becoming a lot more volatile. Uh, and I think you were uh, very early on that, so that, I thought that was interesting. No, that and, is true, um, and also we, we, we advised on the back of that as well, um, taking that, that the speculation was going to put iron ore price um, in a roofwood direction, uh, you know, and look at the stocks that were on the back of that. And yeah, we, you, you actually helped a lot of people super fund this year, mate, indirectly. So it's I, good. I appreciate. No, it's uh, not because just watching the market I still do whether it's uh, whether it's my older days or uh, what I do now. But certainly, uh, there's still a very very large degree of speculation in those markets, and um, all I say from a fundamental perspective is that coking coal prices are on the way down, and iron ore stockpiles are at two year highs. So to me. Does that make a fundamental case to be buying iron ore here and, and putting it back above 80 bucks a ton? I'll let others decide, but you, know, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice that... That's my job. Yep. Yeah, okay. Good work. I've got, one, I've got one for you, indirectly related to you, Paul, actually. So I don't know, this was best and worst, depending on which side of the trade you were at, but uh, I did have a bet on that the All Blacks would beat the Irish. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> How did that go? I then followed it up with the Wallabies would beat the Irish. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know. Wow. Best um, and worst call there, uh, one. Very, very <laughs> precise on, um, you know, point forecasts with um, economics, all sorts of components of GDP. Um, and inflationary pressures, FX and everything. Rugby? Maybe not, though. I think I gave the Irish a start as well. Yeah. We, 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 we got dotted by the referee in the Irish game. There you go. Blame, the, blame the referee. <laughs> Look, um, I actually did have on my list of best calls, I had one for myself, which was setting my alarm for 4 a.m. in the morning to get up and watch that game. Live from Chicago. Nice. Yeah. And I got up with my little boy, who was then seven months old, and I put him in a little Irish rugby jersey, and we sat on the couch and uh, watched the whole thing unfold, and it was great being on, you know, WhatsApp talking to my brothers as they're all, it was just, uh, what a, what a great uh, day. So that, that was, uh, my, my, my best decision was getting up that morning to watch the game. Well yeah. done. It was a, 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 and the number of things that just summarised 2016, that was another one of those ones of... of shock of result. The shock result. The Black Swan's the year of the Black Swan. Um, 2016. The, 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 the irony is that... The Green Swan. Yeah, the Green Swan on that one, <laughs> beating, the, beating the Black Swan there. That, that uh, What if 2016 that has done, had all these Black Swan events and, and, and so many legends have been lost and, and so many... Uh, uh, that, what if 2016's great big December laugh is that, hey, you've got another 12 months of this. Welcome to 2017. It just gets weirder. And, and you know, people talk about this whole thing about maybe globalisation is reversing. And, you know, don't mean to get too philosophical or anything, but actually there are trends. So there were economic and consumer trends which were global, but now there is a political trend hmm. which is global. Um, and uh, that is going to make for a very, very interesting uh, 2017, you know, political policy and policy settings haven't been all that important um, for a lot of economists for a long time, but maybe that stuff is starting to come up in the rearview mirror and um, we'll be looking at it more closely next well, year. Well, next year, this the year of Europe, right? For that's political right. political events, so that's really where everyone will be focused. Yeah, anyone who doesn't have the calendar in front of them. Uh, yeah, the, the, the just, just get to know what elections are ahead if you're looking for volatility. It's, yeah. it's definitely an election risk year in 2017 with regards to the euro. Okay, we are going to wrap up. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast uh, from Christmas Insider Australia. 
Um, Paul Colgan is my name. I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief at uh, Business Insider uh, here in Sydney. It's been great having you. David Scott, um, do you want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Well, who ruins for next year? But uh, yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everyone who's listening out there. And uh, thanks for your support over 2016. I'm sure 2017 will be back again and maybe more frequent. Thank you very much, Paul. It's always been great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what's ahead next year and, uh, and uh, continuing working with you on this one. Cheers. And I'd like to say goodbye and I'd like to say a big congratulations to both of you and the Business Insider team. You've got a great podcast and I'm sure 2017 will be a great year for you guys. Well, thank you. And um, thank you to, um, to all of our listeners, all of our readers, um, our, our sponsors, our clients um, and uh, our team at Allure Media and also our colleagues in, uh, in New York and London. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I've been Paul Colgan. You can find us uh, on iTunes under Devils and Details. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au uh, and on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Goodbye. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.